So today I'm going to do something that, uh, excuse me just a little bit, before I get in I'll just tell you, I'm hurting today. Um, I woke up, or Wednesday night I had a tender spot at the base of my incision, and by Thursday night it was red and about the size of a quarter, and now it's red and about this big, and they gave me these big monster horse pills as an antibiotic. I, what gives? I don't know. I, I'm over it, except for I can't be over it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it hurts. So at any rate, just bear with me. I got an appointment Tuesday because of uh, Monday's nothing's open, so can't seem to get beyond this. At any rate, so there's something I've been praying about for some time, and I'll get into that in a moment, but I'm going to do something today that I've only done probably twice in 11 years. I'm not one of these guys that I can probably go back in my computer and find 80% of the messages I've ever preached somewhere on a file, but I don't use old messages. I really don't. Um... I just kind of, and if I do, if I remember preaching on something similar, I may look it up and say, what, I, what did I see? Or what did I say before? And, you know, might grab a point or two. But I usually don't do that. But there's been a message that's been on my heart. So I, about a third of this is from a message I preached on September 23rd, 2018. And it's been challenging to me to see the lack of God's power in God's church. Does anybody else notice it? Eight of you. It just seems like the church of Jesus Christ ought to have more power. And uh, that's been alarming to me. And so, I basically took a, this, a small portion of that message and added some things to it. And I might just say up front, some of you are going to be upset with me this morning. I'm just going to say it. You will, because you're going to say, how dare you? And I'm going to say, take it up with God. Some of you are going to say, yeah, that challenges me because my life doesn't represent what it ought to represent. And some of you are going to say, well, that doesn't apply. And I'm going to say, great. If you're in the right stand before God, praise be to God. And I will rejoice with you because you are. And uh, but something that's been on my heart for quite some time is the whole idea of praying for revival. In Psalm 84, he says, when will you revive us again? And I think we need to see a sweeping revival across our land again. We can get irritated and upset and fired up about everything that's going on, but what is the whole, what's the word I'm looking for, what is the whole answer to it all? Is Jesus Christ, right? One person at a time. I'm not praying that God would just bring a, you know, in a, a, a sweeping revival and all of a sudden 27,000 people get saved. I'm praying that God would use each and every one of us, if we truly know Jesus Christ as our Savior, to impact the lives of those around us. That's where it's going to start. That's where it has to start. But even before that, we need to start praying that God would open up those doors. And that God would really work in our own hearts to see if we're walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. So the message comes from my heart as I've contemplated several thoughts such as, Number one, why is there a lack of Holy Spirit power and answered prayers in the lives of so many professing believers? And let me just, I want you to be honest. You say, well, Pastor, are you ticked off at me? No, I have no agenda this morning other than to challenge you. With the help of the Holy Spirit, to challenge you. And then for you to honestly be honest with yourself and to humbly answer these questions. When's the last time you saw answered prayer in your life? When's the last time that you pleaded before God and said, God, if you don't do this, it's not going to get done. I need to see your hand at work. I need your wisdom. I need you to answer this prayer. When's the last time we got on our face before God and said, God, I need you to answer this prayer? When's the last time? And let me just say, not just because He may not answer right then and there, because sometimes God doesn't do that, but that doesn't mean we don't stop. It does mean that we keep bringing it before God because because sometimes God says, absolutely not, I'm not doing that, but if you hold on, I'll do something much better than what you're asking for. But in the big picture, how many years do you have to go back before you say, God answer a prayer in your life? Some of you say, well, I, I, I pray all the time, I pray all the time. When's the last time God has answered your prayer? See, a lot of people pray and they have no expectation that God's going to even answer in fact, Hebrews tells us that they that go to God must believe that He exists and that He is a what? A rewarder of them that what? Diligently seek Him. When's the last time that we really just sat before God and said, God, I need you to do this? And I have to be honest, my life of this has been ebb and flow like many of yours. 
And there's been periods where I'm like, God can do absolutely anything. I'll prove it. And then there's been chapters in my life where I say, God, where are you? I just don't see it. But I know that I'm challenged that I need to get back to it and more consistently, more committedly, if I want to see God's power in my life. Number two, why is there a lack of commitment to do the work of the ministry by so many professing believers? Why is it that we can sit back and we know that there are needs to be done and we just sit silly week after week after week after week and we just have an idea that, well, maybe I should get involved. Maybe I should do it. Well, someone else will take care of it. Somebody else will stand up. Somebody else will pay the cost of that. Somebody else will pay the fee for this. Somebody else will do it. When God is prompting your heart to do it. But if we really were children of God, we'd say, God, let, let me be used. Let me be the first to stand up. I'm not going to wait for someone else. I'm not going to wait for anyone else to do it. I'm going to stand up. And some of you can't honestly stand before God today and say, this is what I've done for you. That's just the obvious. Re- that's just obvious. The church is lacking people who will do the work of the ministry. Just fired up. Yeah, because it's all of us. It's not just our church. It's the church of Jesus Christ across the country. And once again, 1,500 churches a year closing their doors, never to be reopened, because God's people will not step up if they are God's people. They ought to be. When's the last time you served Jesus Christ? When's the last time you volunteered to do something for God in His glory? Another question, why do we not hear of people coming to truly know the Lord in our daily conversations? I mean, we talk about politics, I and mean, we're irritated to high heaven that we're paying $5 a gallon for gas. I said this three years ago in a sermon. I actually typed it, I had to find it. Three years ago, I said, what if gas gets to $5 a gallon? Are you just going to quit buying it? Well, of course not, because you still got to get to point A to point B. But we're going to gripe about it. But do we talk about Jesus Christ? Ever? Ever! We don't open our mouth because because we're afraid it might tick that person off or it might make them upset or they might you know, hold it against me. But we don't talk and we don't hear about people getting saved anymore. Is that important to us as God's children? Yes or no? It ought to be important to us. But I'll also say you can't give away what you haven't got. Ooh, that's harsh. Number four, why hasn't there been anyone surrendered their life to the mission field or to the pastorate or to some other form of ministry in the midst of years? Think about that. Why, why are we not hearing of anybody saying, I'm going to the mission field? Man, if somebody has a windfall fall on their, in their lap, they inherit something, well, everybody knows about it. Get a new job, everybody knows about it. Do this, everybody knows about it. But when's the last time that we heard of somebody saying, God, I am so in love with you, I want to go to the mission field, and I want to serve you, I want to give you my life for the rest of my life. We don't hear about those things anymore. What we hear of is everyone quitting the mission field. I heard a statistic about two years ago that said of 80% of the mission fields coming, or missionaries coming off the field, they're only being replaced by 10 to 12% going onto the field. We now have more missionaries going to countries like ours than we have going to third world countries. That's a fact. I think it's pretty embarrassing when I can go up to IGM and hear of missionaries in Africa sending missionaries here. Or missionaries in India sending missionaries here to reach people. Here in the United States. We ought to be sending people out. Does anybody disagree with that? But rather than sending people out, why, why won't we consider going ourselves? Well, that's for other people. And I'll say it again. Can't give what you haven't got. Say, is it that desperate, Pastor? I think it is. Leonard Ravenhill, one of the greatest, I think, evangelists and revivalists of our century, last century, said this. And by the way, he preached up until the day he died and his two sons are still pastors in their late 70s today. He went on to say, he goes, I believe that less than 5% of churches in America, less than 5% of the people in churches in America are truly born-again believers. I believe it. I used to be real critical of that in my 20s. Now that I'm 50, 
I think he's dead on. Because we have churches with no power, very little obedience, very little commitment, and seeing God do nothing, but we're here every week. Is God in, amazed with us? I, don't, I think not. I think not. So these questions and thoughts go through my mind often, and I've, I've come to the conclusion that there can only be a couple of viable answers. As the, the answers to these questions, there can only be a couple of viable answers. And uh, this, this is just my two cents, and I think they're based on Scripture. Number one, either we are in such disobedience to the written Word of God that we don't care anymore and are not walking to, willing to walk in fellowship with Him. I think that's a possible answer. We just don't care. We're in disobedience. We're not walking with God. We're not reading His Word. We're not asking the Holy Spirit to, to work within us. And we just don't care. Because if we cared, we'd do something about it. What happens when your children are in pain? What happens when your children are doing wrong? What happens when your children need something? When they're in, their, in your house under your care, and maybe they're 7 or 9 or 12 years old, they're not, they don't have their own jobs, right? They don't have their own insurance. They're not, they don't have their cars to get anywhere. What happens? Because they're our children, we do whatever it takes to meet the needs that they are going through and experiencing. But why is it that we don't have the same commitment to do what God has asked us to do? Why don't we bend over backwards to do something for Him? We give God leftovers. It's called microwave Christianity. We give a little bit here, 30 seconds here, a minute there, two minutes there. Oh, every once in a while you did a 12-minute defrost. I mean, that, we give God microwave leftovers. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me you don't think the same thing, people, if we're honest with ourselves. God gets the leftovers. And neither we are in such disobedience to the written Word of God that we don't care and we're not walking in fellowship anymore. Or, number two, we truly don't know Jesus Christ as we have claimed. And ultimately, hear me, we're destined for hell. Say, so is that a possibility? Yes, it is. It's absolutely a harsh reality. And if Leonard Ravenhill was even remotely correct that 5% of churches are truly born-again believers walking in fellowship and have truly experienced salvation, that means 95% of us ought to be concerned. Let's say he's only off by half. Let's say 50% aren't saved. There's 50% of us that ought to be truly concerned. Does our life match what we say is in our heart? See, loud are our actions much louder than our words. I think it was Thursday morning I talked to a friend of mine who had lost his wife last year. This man was once a pastor. In fact, this man spoke in this pulpit seven years ago, eight years ago. A friend of mine from Bible college. And he lost his wife, uh, Due to alcoholism, they lost a son who died of suicide. And she struggled with how to cope with it and ended up drinking and drinking herself to death. He would tell you that. Um, today, she died about a year ago, by the way. He said to me on the, on, through texting yesterday, or a couple days ago, he said, I feel lost like I'm wandering in the desert without a home. And my only response was this. I can't possibly know how you feel or what you're going through. But I remember a quote from Red Arbach. Some of you remember him. One of the greatest basketball coaches that ever lived. He told his players, he said, this is a ball. It's coated in leather. And underneath that layer of leather, there's a layer of rubber. It's filled with air. You throw it towards the ground, it will come back up to you. What was his point? When we are struggling to do what we're supposed to do, always go back to the basics. Always. And the basics for us as believers is that when we have truly given our life to Christ, everything changes. We go back to what He said to do now that you know Me. He said these are the circumstances that will guard and guide your life. And if we're not doing it, we need to get back to the basics. It's not rocket science. 
It's really not. I hear all the time, I used to, I used to hear when I was growing up, well, if God calls me to ministry, I'll go. So what's this mysterious call look like? I mean, you're going to see fireworks in the sky and it's written out for all of, all of creation to see? Or is it a simple surrender saying, God, I'll do it? We always wait for these mysterious calls. These mysterious, you know, if circumstance has to take place, and then not only the circumstance, three more circumstances have to back it up, and then maybe I'll give my life to Christ and do whatever He's asked me to do. How about just go and when God shuts the door to service, I'll just stop. Like that's going to happen. I don't understand that. But it seems as though when it comes to Christianity and our daily relationship to Jesus Christ, as it's as though we skip the basics. Why? Well, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, and if we're going to do a hand-raised thing, some of you have been saved for years, or your testimony is that you've been saved for years. Oh, I went here, did this, did that, I got saved. And you've heard it all, you've done it all, you've experienced it all, and now you're just beyond it. You've graduated. I've heard it a million times. Well, I used to do this. I used to do that. But that's for someone else now. I, I, I Honestly, I didn't know there was a retirement with serving the Lord. I didn't. I hope I'm like Dr. Monroe Parker. I preach my last message in the pulpit and die. I hope that's the case. And let me just say this. Doing the will of God necessar- is not necessarily in this, what I'm doing. God has not called everybody to ministry. But as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, everybody ought to struggle with the possibility of it. Because God is in the business of using people. So I want to get back to some very, very familiar verses. And I want you to turn your Bibles there, because I want you to read them. I want you to underline them. I want you to take them in like you've never heard them before. Even though I know you've heard them 8,000 times. How about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and 10? And I want you to be honest with yourselves. I wish all of us would just stop for a minute and pray say, God... If I don't know you, would you make that clear to me this morning? And God, if I'm in disobedience, would you make that clear to me this morning? Because I cannot help believe that if we as a church were walking in obedience and in the power of God, we'd see God doing some incredibly amazing things. But if we're honest with ourselves, we haven't seen God do some incredibly amazing things. Not in a while. Look at verse 8. Let me go back. Verse 7. It says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Has God showed his exceeding grace to us, yes or no? Wow. I find it amazing that I'm just going to speak for myself. If someone were to walk up to me and say, Hey, Pastor Ken, I don't know why, but I just I want to give you a, I want to give you fifty thousand dollars. Well, that's never happened in my life, but I just want to give you a, I just want to give you fifty thousand dollars cash. And if anybody did that to you, would you not feel an obligation or a sense of commitment to do something back? I mean, isn't that how our flesh works? God has been exceedingly gracious to us. And he never asked us to die for him because he was. He asked us to what? Live for him. And he says he's going to, in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace. If we got what we truly deserved, every one of us would be destined to hell in a heartbeat. Amen? If we got what we deserved. And then verse 80 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So here he very clearly says, You cannot save yourself. There's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. It's only because I am, I am willing to bestow my grace to you that you are able to be in my family. You accept Him by grace, not of works. But then He goes on and says this, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. I think we've muddied the waters of what we think good works are. Oh, I go to church. That's not good works. That's obedience. Hebrews 10.25. That is not works. 
if you're serving the Lord, teaching a class, maybe we kind of went into that other realm. But that's not good works. And this is that God, the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. So is it a one-time deal? Yes or no? No. Is it a continuous thing? Yes or no? Yeah. So let me ask you a question. I just want you to put your humility, humble hat on. What's the good works that you're doing for the Lord? Let's be honest. Just be honest. Not for me, not for anyone else, but for God. What is the good works that you are doing for the Lord? What are they? Well, I read the Bible. No, I'm sorry. You can disagree with me. If that's not good works, that's obedience. That's developing your relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father as He wants you to do. That's not good works. See, work is work. Reading is reading. So, well, I'm a man. Reading is work. I get it. But the reality is works are something that we exert ourselves for, right? I mean, if you go to church, and, I mean, go to work every day and sit on your hiney and don't do anything and you never, you know, exert energy, is it really work? Not usually. See, work usually you exert energy. What's the energy that you are exerting for God's sake? I'm making some of you irritated. I know. I can see it. Good. So I want you to think. I don't want an average church. I don't want a normal church. I don't want good churches just good enough. I don't want that. I don't want it for my own life. I don't want it for yours. How about James 2? I said these are familiar verses. Turn over there. James chapter 2. I'm going to fly through them very quickly. Are you going to read them up there or, or just listen? So what does it profit, James 2, verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have work? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? What's the word? Dead. Faith without works is dead. It's non-existence. Once again, he says, my faith does not save me alone, neither do my works save me alone. But if I truly know Jesus Christ, if I truly put my faith and trust in Him, I should have a service that is my work for Him. That's what I didn't say. God's Word said it. What are you doing for God? It's not my, it's not my deal. It's God's deal. If you don't like it, yell at Him. He says you can't say you know me and not serve me. But He doesn't stop there. Because he always knows there's going to be, but someone's going to say this. Verse 18. But someone will say, oh, you have faith and I have work. So, you know, you're really good at believing. I'm really good at doing. He says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God? You do well. Even the demons believe in what? Tremble. So the reality is, There are many people that believe, have no works. He says, even the demons believe, and they what? Tremble. Why are they trembling? I mean, mean, if they're not doing anything wrong, if there's nothing wrong with their system or their philosophy of belief, why would they have to tremble? Because there's a difference between saying and doing. There's a difference between claiming I know Jesus, but then not living for Him and serving Him with my life. There's a huge difference. So he goes on in verse 20, but do you want to do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is, say it again, dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with works, and by works was faith made perfect? And that word perfect means the idea of complete or mature. See, your your works help mature you in your walk with Christ. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, then, that man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so, that for, so faith without works is dead also. Wow. He says, what are you doing for me? Now, now I didn't ask if you went to church. I didn't ask if you gave an offering. I didn't ask if you prayed. 
You see, there are three things that I think the early church was expected to do. In God's Word, He says very clearly. He says, when you pray, He didn't say if you pray, did He? He says, when you give. He didn't say if you give, right? He said, when you give. And He also said, when you fast. Not if you fast, but when you fast. Those were three things that He didn't say if. He says when. So does that not presuppose that those are three expectations that he gave to the early church? Yes or no? By far, yes. But how many of us have been selective in which one of those three that we fulfill? If I feel like giving, I'll give. If I feel like praying, I'll pray. And if I feel like fasting, I'll fast. But I really don't feel like doing those things, so eh, someone else will take care of that. But I'm still a believer. I'm still a Christian. Really? Because I think some of us haven't got it. It's easy to follow the love your neighbor passage. That's a little bit easier than, you know, all the other things that God expects of us. It's easy to forsake not the assembling passage, because I'm, I'm here every week. It's just part of who I am. But what about the serving the Lord part? Some of you can't honestly say that it's been, it's, been, it's been years since you've done anything for the Lord. Some of you, if you're honest with yourself, it's been years since you've shared your faith. Some of you, it's been years since you said, hey, I want to get re-engaged and get involved. But for some of you, you never will and you never have because you truly don't know Him. See, really? Yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to think. Because based on God's word, there are certain things that result as a, re, as a result of after knowing him, putting our faith in him. It doesn't stop there. Look over Matthew chapter 28. I was reading through this again this week, and I thought to myself, wow. Familiar passage. These, these are things you've heard before, right? Anybody not heard these things? You've heard these. You've heard these. So in the first... Uh, well, ten verses or so, it's just, <laughs> he's risen. The bottom line is, he's risen. Uh, there's been an earthquake, verse 2. Um, the stone's been rolled back from the door. Uh, it, it's just an amazing story. He's out and about, and people run into him, and they don't even believe it's him. They have no idea it's him. So look it down to verse uh, 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. Some were doubting it was even him. Why? Because he had died. But wait a minute. He said he was going to die, and then what? Raised again three days later. He fulfilled his promise. And he's walking about. And they are doubting if this is really him. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. As I've said before, sometimes we focus on the go, but it's better translated as as you are going, as you are going about your day. You see, as we are going about our day, we should be ever conscious of those, those around us who do not know Jesus. Those around us who may never have heard of Jesus and what Jesus can do for them. But the whole idea behind baptizing and teaching is the means of how and of, of the, the means or the how of making disciples. Um, I believe two things have taken place in the church. I think, number one, we've forgotten the powerful significance of baptism. I've had people over the years ask me if I will baptize their infant baby, and I often say, I'm sorry, I'd love to sit down and talk to you. I said, that's really not an option right now, but I would love to sit down and talk to you about it. Infant baptism is unbiblical. Not one place in Scripture will you see where Jesus emphasizes baby baptism. Baby dedication, yes. 
No problem with that. But do you realize the significance and the power behind baptism? You've seen me do it a thousand times. Watch me one more time. I stand in the water. I form a what? Here's the water. Here's me. I form a what? Cross. What did Jesus Christ do on the cross? He went under. Did He stay under? No. He rose again the third day. The reality is baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's been nothing more powerful in my life that I've seen this emphasized and illustrated as when I was in Weagamaw Lake, Canada, up on an Indian reservation. Only 600 people on the entire island. The only way to get vehicles there are either have them flown in by helicopter or fly in by plane. Or once the winter roads come into play and the roads are frozen, they'll drive new vehicles in. I got to spend a summer at Weagamaw Lake or several weeks at Weagamaw Lake as a teenager. Garland Cofield, in fact, this is so cool. Just a couple weeks ago, I ran into somebody whose father or friend was there doing um, a revival meeting, I think, while I was there. Six-hour revival meetings on that. And there's only 20 people in, in attendance uh, in this little Indian reservation. And I think they were preaching in, a, in, in either Blackfoot or Ojibwe. I can't remember. I think it was Blackfoot. And as he was preaching, about four people got saved that week. And Saturday morning before we flew out of Weagamaw Lake, somehow between Friday night and Saturday morning, the word got out that there was going to be a baptism down at the lake. This little island, 600 people. Woke up the next morning, went down to the lake. Every person in that entire village was down there kind of trying to see what was going on, what was happening. Talk about a powerful illustration. 600 people. Every person on that entire island showed up to see what this baptism thing was all about. And as the, those four or five people that got saved that week walked into the water one by one, and Garland Cofield preached that message of the, of the death, burial, and resurrection. And then they got to see these people publicly identify with Christ. It was powerful. And let me say this. In one of the reservations up there, they ministered in that reservation every Saturday for eight years before they saw their first convert. Which was the year before, I, my, like in 1988 or 1989 when I went there. Eight years of con- consistent faithful witness before they got their first convert, a little girl named Rebecca. Unbelievable. And here's the thing. According to Pauline epistles in several places, when we identify with Christ and we crucify the flesh, it says what? Old things are passed away. All things become new. You see, I no longer have to live for all the things of the world. The things of the world don't have pull on me anymore. The principles that the world lives for, the purpose for which the world lives, are not ours any longer. And I still say it today. If there's no difference between us and the world, why would they want what we've got? Tell me that. Is that not just reality? Is that not just logical common sense? If we're no different than the world, why would they want what what we say we've got? Oh, by the way, the only difference is we're going to heaven and you're not. And I would say, (laughs) I'm not sure if that's the only difference. Wow. We have forgotten the powerful significance of baptism that when we walked into the waters of baptism, we crucified the flesh. We put the death, the life that we had before Jesus Christ. There ought to be a difference in us. Not that we just no longer steal or lie or cheat, all those things that we can kind of manage on our own because you might be a good person. But to truly live the life that God has called you is not necessarily the sins of commission, it's the sins of omission. I said this morning, if you're not willing to share your faith, at least get them here so we can. What's your work for the Lord? Wow. Turn to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. I'm, I'm trying to hurry. I'm, I'm failing here. 
Romans chapter 6. Verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin... Remember, we crucified our old life when we got baptized. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Hmm. James tells us, to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So how can we continue sin? Some of your translations say certainly not. Some of your translations may say God forbid. Some of your translations may say may it never be so. What's he saying? Don't abuse the grace of God. Don't not do what you're supposed to do just because when you pray God's going to forgive you. That's abusing the grace. I still believe that. If I can continue in sin just because I know God's going to forgive, that's abusing God's grace. Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Remember, He gave His life. He shed His blood that we might have forgiveness of sin. That we might trust in Him to be our Savior. Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also will be like in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin what, might what? Be done away with. And that we'd be no longer slaves to sin. What's he saying here? When we know Jesus, everything changes. How we used to live is not how we should live now. The things that were important to us then may not necessarily be the things that should be important to us now. There ought to be a change in us. Uh, look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? I mean, I'm thankful that we're not under the law. We are under grace. I appreciate Certainly not. Do you not know that, that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, that, uh, that you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We're to be holy now. We're to be righteous before God. I'm convicted of it. These things are not always in my life. I want them to be. Romans 1.1 Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the Gospel of God, are we separated unto the gospel as a church, as a body of believers? Question. I'm almost through. Jesus Christ has called us to be disciples of himself. Is that true? Anybody disagree with that? We are called to be Jesus' disciples. We understand that, right? Okay. What is a disciple? Here's my definition. I think it's from Scripture. A disciple is one who follows his master, learns everything that his master can teach him, and then puts into practice everything he has learned. That's a disciple. We see it in the forms of martial arts, where they learn from their master, right? And, and do they just want to learn some of what their master is going to teach them, or do they want to learn all of it? I mean, what good is you as a fighter if you only want to learn 20% of what your master knows? That, that sounds ridiculous. You know, they want to learn it all, right? If I'm going to discipline myself to learn the martial arts, I want to learn everything so that I can be the best at what I do. It is the same situation of discipleship. We are His disciples. A disciple is one who follows his master, learns everything that his master can teach him, and then puts into practice everything that he has learned. I'm going to have you turn to one more passage in Luke chapter 14. In verse 26. This is amazing to me. You've heard it a thousand times. I actually had a man in this church here about eight or nine years ago. He says, that's not, that's not God's word. That's not in the Bible. God would never tell us that. And I had to take my Bible and actually show him the verse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot what? Cannot be my disciple. 
Is he telling you to hate those around you that you love most? No. That's not what he's saying. But in comparison, our love for God ought to be so far greater than our love for anyone else. I jokingly tell my friend Dave when he does something crazy, I say, who loves you, Dave? That's right, God does. You know, it's just, it's the truth, though. Who loves us? God. And who are we to love in return more than anyone? God. But if you were to tell me, I love my children so much, but then you wouldn't provide for their meals, or doctor's visits, or good health, or take them to a dentist once in their lifetime, I don't know, however, you need to, however often you need to go. But if you were to tell me you love your children, but then did not do what is best for them, do you think I'm going to believe that you love your children? No. So, question. God's Word tells us in the book of John, He who loves me keeps my commandments. And God says, you're telling me you love me, but you're not obeying me. Do you think He believes it? Whoa, that's pretty quiet. What? Oh, there you go. There's the other two of you. You see, our actions say one thing. Our words are often something else. And if our actions aren't backed up, or our words aren't backed up by our actions, they, they're meaningless. So he says, to be my disciple, do you love me more? Do you love me more? Now I realize you love your family. I, I, I can't stand that my kids in Texas and you know they're gonna I, it just drives me nuts to think about it. But I'm thankful that we they're doing what we train them to do. We train them to be productive, obedient citizens of their community. My kids will work seventy hours a week. They're hard workers. What more can I ask? They love God, David's gone to church every week since he's been down there. Enjoying it. He, in fact, he even invited someone and they asked if they had daycare at the church if they were to go. <laughs> David says, yeah, we have classes for the kids. <laughs> you know, it's just... But the distance drives you nuts. Because you want to just say, hey, oh, wait a minute, they're not here. We're learning that. We're learning to accept those things. I don't like them. But the reality is we should love God more than we love our children. We should love God more than we love our spouse. I'm telling you, I don't care how great your relationships are. I don't care if you've got the greatest relationships on the face of God's earth. Human relationships will fail you at times. How do I know that? Because I have failed my wife numerous times. I've never cheated on her. Don't, don't go there. But there's been times I haven't loved her as I ought. And she's been gracious and merciful. And I'm thankful that she loves God because if she didn't, she wouldn't love me. And some of you can say the same thing. Human relationships will fail. But God's love never fails. But we have to love Him more. Look at verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says very clearly, he doesn't deny himself and take up his cross. Can't be my disciple. <laughs> what cross are you bearing for the Lord? What, what area of life have you denied yourself in and for, the, for the cause of Christ? Many of us can't, can't even think of something to fill in that blank. 2 Timothy 3 says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying, but denying its power. And he says, from such turn away. And he goes on and on and on. You know, we live in such a world where we're not willing to deny ourselves. That's why all these things are taking place. They're rampant. Verse 28, here's another one. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it? What's he saying here? He considers the cost of his commitment. 
have we really sat down and considered the cost of our commitment? That there will be those around you, and we're so worried about irritating somebody, offending somebody, making somebody mad at us. They may not like us anymore. We're so worried about that that we don't say anything. We don't do anything for the cause of Christ. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. We're so worried that we don't say anything. Luke 14.33, last one we'll look at here. So likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Are you saying, Pastor, I just go out and sell everything I got and give it to the church? No, I'm not saying that at all. You should do it if God tells you to do it. Because then that's an issue of obedience between you and God. But no, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what God's Word is saying. Are we willing to give up what we have in our commitment to follow Christ? Are we willing to sacrifice the things that God has blessed us with that are truly His anyway, right? Everything we have, including our kids, are His, right? Are we willing to give up the things that are nearest and dearest to us to truly follow Jesus Christ? I think these are things that have evaded the church so often. And we've made excuses for it. We've even become satisfied with it because, well, good, good, good is good enough. Things are just good enough. I mean, I'm not out there carousing with the world. I'm not getting drunk every weekend. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not in alcohol. I'm not, doing, I'm not involved in adultery. I'm not involved in fornication. I, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. I'm not. Because God's Word says all your righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. I didn't say it. God said it. Anything that we think is good, God says, <laughs> Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're not as good as we think we are. And I still come back to what I started with this morning. The reality is, why? Why, tell me, is there a lack of Holy Spirit power and unanswered prayer in our lives as professing believers? How far back do some of us have to go to say, oh, I remember that desperate prayer and God answered it? A year? Two years? Five years? Ten years? Twenty years? Shame on us. And we're okay with it. That's the sad part. We're okay with it. Ah, This is what it is. We've accepted it. Rather than fighting for God's power in our lives. We've accepted it. Why is there a lack of commitment to do the work of the ministry? By professing believers. Because someone else will do it. I've already done my part. I served my time. Somebody else will do it. And we're okay with that. We, I, I can remember times when we needed nursery workers and toddler workers. And I said, I... I have joked, I have been stern, I have questioned, I have laughed, I have got to have a PhD in nursery psychology, I mean, I, we, and still nobody steps forward. It ain't my kids, let somebody else do it. If you've got kids, you do it. Why is it that we don't have a heart to serve? But we're professing believers. Well, that's not my gift. I had a lady tell me one time, at cleaning day, she goes, it's not my spiritual gift, cleaning is not my spiritual gift. And I said, wow, that's amazing, it's not mine either. She really looked at it as a spiritual gift. Cleaning the church is not a spiritual gift. Just let me tell you. It's nowhere in God's Word. I just looked at it and said, it's not my gift either, but I'm here. What is it that we can be doing to serve God that we're saying somebody else will do it? Why do we not hear of people coming to truly know the Lord Jesus Christ? And why is there a lack of commitment in following God? And it still comes down to two things. And only two things. Either we are in such disobedience to the Holy Spirit and the written Word of God that we don't care, or we truly do not know Jesus. There's nothing in between. Some of you say, man, you're irritating me. No, let God's Word irritate you. If you can sit here week after week, month after month, year after year, and not serve God in some capacity, I have to question whether or not you know Jesus Christ. Because if you know Him, 
and you say you love Him, then follow Him in obedience to, and be committed to Him. That's all. I can't be satisfied with just, oh well. I don't want to be satisfied with good is good enough. Some of you have been here for 40 plus years. Some of you have been here for four years, four months. And I don't care whether you're the four-month side or the 40-year side. I don't see retirement in God's Word. I don't see retirement from serving God in His Word. You say, well, I can't walk anymore. I've had hip replacement. I've had knee replacement. I've had this. I mean, I, I, mean, I need a brain replacement. I'm, I'm doing what I can. The reality is, if you want to serve, there's an area for you to serve in. I've said it a thousand times. If you can't come here to fill the field and be physically involved, then come here and sit around the table and pray that while he gives us gives uh, salvation testimony and the invitation that God's, God's Spirit would work in hearts, sit over here and pray. Do something. But to do nothing is sin. If you're a child of God and you can watch all this stuff go on around you, I have to question whether you're really a child of God. But I'm here every week. Jesus, did I not do miracles in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not, Jesus, did I not walk with you? And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Wow. I didn't say it, he did. Folks, we have got to do better. If we're not saved, the greatest thing that you could do today is say, you know what? If I'm honest with myself, and God knows my heart, my life does not represent someone who truly knows Jesus Christ. Trust Him today. Commit to Him today. Don't just get up here and say, oh, I surrender all. It was that last song, we're surrendering all. But truly, if we're honest with ourselves, we shouldn't sing those words if we're not willing doing it. Because we ought to be saying, I surrender some. If you're here today, you say, well, Pastor, I'm just, ugh, you really irritated me in some areas. That might be a good indication that you might not know him. Pastor, you've irritated me in some areas. might be a good indication that you're in willful disobedience before God Almighty. And maybe today is the day that you need to come forward and say, Jesus, I surrender my life completely. I want to put my complete faith and trust in you. Maybe today's that day for some of you. It'd be the greatest decision you could ever make if the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart. For some of you, you need to recommit because you know you're walking in disobedience. Expect someone else to do what God's asked you to do if you're honest with yourself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, Lord, I know it's a hard message. God, I know it's difficult to hear some of these things. But God, we don't want to be a wish-washy church. We don't want to be a church where just good is good enough. We don't want to be a church where Bottom line is we're just okay with the way things are. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to be a church that is truly a church of people who are truly saved, have truly put their faith and trust in you, they've repented of their sins, and they're walking in obedience and commitment to you, Lord. God, I pray that you'd work in hearts this morning. Lord, I, I do believe that there may be some here today, Lord, that do not know you as their Savior. They're here at church. They give. They even help others. But if they're honest, they're not saved. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, before I ask too many questions, I've got a couple favors to ask. Number one, if you truly know Jesus Christ, would you pray right now? Would you truly, if you are 100% confident of your salvation in Jesus Christ, would you pray that if there be one here today that does not know him, that today might be their day of salvation? Number two, 
if you are willing to pray, would you humble yourselves before God and ask Him how He'd have you to respond? Don't think of someone else, but truly ask God how He wants you to respond. Ask yourself if you're walking in obedience and commitment to Him. Number three, would you just be completely honest? Just be honest. So here's the two questions I want us to consider for our invitation this morning. Every single Sunday we have an opportunity to respond to what we've heard. So here's the first question. Do you truly know Jesus Christ? Has there been a time in your life where you said, God, I surrender myself to you. I'm willing to repent of my sins and put my faith and trust in you. Maybe you say, Pastor, I don't know. Based on the things I've heard today, my life does not give indication that I truly know him, and I'm concerned about it. Would you pray for me? I'll not embarrass you, I'll not call you out. I'm just not certain. But with uplifted hands, say, Pastor, just pray for me. Anyone like that? Yes. 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 I appreciate your honesty. Anyone else say, Pastor, based on my life, I'm not really certain I'm saved. But I'm concerned. Would you pray for me? Anyone else like that? In just a moment, I'm going to share with you how you can know Jesus. But the second question is, before we do that, you say, Pastor... I'm, I'm not really questioning my salvation, but I'm in disobedience. The things that you've talked about, the things that you have mentioned concerning my obedience, it's not there. God's convicted me this morning. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that? Yes. Yes. All over. Can I challenge you to take a moment right now and pray? To God forgive me. Because him that knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. What needs to change in your life? God, show that to me. Reveal that to me. Help me to know so that I can change and grow and walk in you. For those of you that raise your hand, your heart towards the Lord in salvation, it's a simple prayer of faith. My prayer cannot save you. It will not save you. But if you're concerned this morning, you want to pray and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, It's a simple prayer. You can pray after me. Your faith will save you. Your words to our Heavenly Father will save you. My words will not. But if you're saying, I don't really know what to say, I'm not sure how to do this, it's a simple childlike faith prayer. Something like this. Dear Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I repent of it. I turn from it with your help, Lord. I put my faith and trust in you, dear Father. I ask you, Lord, to save me and make me your child. And to help me, Lord, live for you in obedience and commitment. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, If you prayed that prayer, would you simply just lift your hand this morning? Yes, thank you. Anyone else? Say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. Yes, thank you. Lord, for each one who's raised their hand, their heart towards you this morning, I ask God that you would help them to live it out, to never be ashamed of the gospel. For is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. But Lord, I want to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. I want to see the power of God bringing souls to salvation. I want to see the power of God bringing people to a place of repentance and baptism and discipleship. I want to see people saved. God, may we never be just satisfied with good is good enough or, oh well, we're okay. 
God, I pray that you'd work in every one of our hearts, especially those who acknowledge that there's areas of sin in their life that needs to change. I ask, God, that you do a work in all of us, Lord, starting with me. God, I pray that you would start in my life. God, be with all of us, Lord, as we go our separate ways. Lord, there are so many things that aren't happening. The things that are, Lord, that are wrong in this world are glaringly obvious. And if there's ever been a time that we as believers need to stand up for truth, for righteousness, for your glory, for obedience sake, God, I pray that we would do it. God, work in our hearts. May we be changed from the inside out. I pray, God, that you would bring a revival in our midst. And Lord, I pray people wouldn't be ticked off or upset over being challenged. But Lord, that they would truly say, Lord, is it I that need to make the change? God, work in our hearts, we pray. May your presence be known and felt in our midst, Lord. As we go our separate ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.